Hold on to your butts. Welcome to episode 35 of the Civil War Breakfast Club podcast. As always, I'm joined by Mary, a woman who likes to thank you for all the letters she received while she was in prison. I am just Darren. Good afternoon, Mary. But at least I wasn't in a prison in Ohio. Ooh. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, coming hot. <laughs> Hold on to your butts. Here we go. Episode Here 35. Go. Sounds like a million. Anyway, how are you? What's going on? What's I'm new? good. How are you? Well, you know, it's a Tuesday. It's here and. Cape Cod USA, my beloved future World Series champion Red Sox, have won again. They've won about a million in a row. <laughs> and things are going great. So how about yourself? Didn't, did you mispronounce Indians again? Do they still have a team? I wasn't sure if they still have a team. Or, in any case. <laughs> anyway, so, um, so we had a good week. I thought we had a pretty good live last week. We did. Yep. Pretty good, pretty good episode that we did. And now we're going back to the beginning again, back where it all started. Part de of our episode of secession we're going to talk a lot about fort sumter the lead up to it again and how the whole thing kind of went and if this thing didn't happen the way this did mary we'd have nothing to talk about we'd exactly we wouldn't we wouldn't we'd just sit here we hey, would just we would just be two nerds sitting in a bar not talking Maybe about the civil war right just insulting me is yep. what it would be yeah, exactly <laughs> but, um we actually before we get started we got to do the usual see that almost jumped ahead of us again. you did look at you go mm. you're referring okay. to what we're drinking tonight yes so what are you, you drinking first Oh, me we, first. Let's go. Oh. Let's let's go. Let's go by the close to the ground first. So you go first. Fucker. I am drinking Lunatic Fridge by Toboggan Brewery, which is out of London, Ontario. And the reason I told or chose Lunatic Fridge is because we are talking about secession tonight in South Carolina, part two of us doing that. And there was a quote by someone, and I know I mentioned it in the first episode, and I can't remember who said it, but the person said that South Carolina was not too small to be a republic. But am I getting that right? I'm totally going to butcher yeah, this. Totally going to butcher this. Too, too small to be a republic, too large, large to, to be, be a lunatic or lunatic asylum. So okay, okay. Well, well, very well said. Okay. <laughs> I've totally um, butchered that. <laughs> wow, there you go. I think the point. Take two. And I am drinking it out of my Abraham Lincoln mug. Okay. Well, since this is the first real shot of the Civil War, I'm drinking a beer called Bullet Takes Flight because that's the first time. Nice. It's by Shiblin Brewery out of who knows where, and I'm drinking it out of my Fort Sumter mug because it's appropriate for tonight's subject. Nice. All right. So in any case, so, you know, this is the second part. Last time we talked about the beginning of the, of the secession, we talked a lot about the lead up, about Charleston, about the Fort Moultrie, and about Anderson and, and all the issues he had. Well, we'll begin with where our heroes are which is on Fort Sumter. So go back again. So Major Robert Anderson from Kentucky, of all mm-hmm. places, he's going to move his entire garrison on a Christmas Eve day, or right around Christmas Day, from Fort Moultrie to Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. Now, Anderson, interesting guy, West Point, class of 1825. He was someone who actually mustered Abraham Lincoln in to service in the Black Hawk War, in 1832. Oh, you didn't cool. let me say that. it. Oh, you'll say it plenty. Black Hawk War. Black Hawk War. South Carolina seceded, and they'll be followed quickly by six more states. We'll get to that. But he's going to move to Fort Sumter on his own orders. If you remember from our last podcast, which I'm sure, Mary, you've forgotten, that he got a lot of tips from people like Don Carlos Buell, who we talked about last week yep. in Shiloh. So he's going to move over to, uh, to Fort Sumter. And this was taken as a real provocative thing at the time by the people in South Carolina. The Charleston Courier, which is a fun-loving newspaper down there, not quite as good as the Mercury, but pretty close. He, they said Major Anderson has achieved the inevitable distinction of opening the Civil War by an act of gross breach of faith. So this high tension right off the bat, Anderson finds himself at Fort Sumter, which is an island right in the middle of the harbor, with 85 men 
and a bunch of women and children. We're going to talk about this as we go in this first part of this, because it's important to note that it's not just soldiers here. This is when we talked before, Fort Moultrie was kind of the place you went with your family. So yeah. it was kind of laid back, you were on the water. So Anderson finds himself now at a garrison with 85 men, but a lot of families, a lot of men, women, and children, the ones who were stationed at Fort Moultrie. As this goes on, we'll talk about the issues he's going to have that's going to ultimately lead up to trying to resupply them, which is going to kind of like the powder keg. How many were state on Fort Sumter again? 85. 85. Yeah. See, about, and, a, about a million. About a million. <laughs> and yeah, he goes there, you know, Christmas Eve day. He or actually during the night, he sneaks over and the people of Charleston are not happy about it. But what the reason he's done that is because South Carolina has seceded. From the they union. did. They, they left the dance floor, as yeah. someone likes to say. Yeah, and this did. has been going on for a while. So we talked last time we did this. They've been threatening to secede. We went all the way back to the Jurassic era of 1830, talking about secession, okay, with John C. Calhoun. We're not going to go all the way that far back, but in the way back machine. Yes, just but listen to, to our say, part one if you want to learn that stuff about kind of the lead yeah, up to secession yeah. and what was happening at the time. That'd be cool. But the biggest issue that, that Anderson is going to have is he's going to be cutting himself off from supplies. And this is going to be the issue. You know, while in Washington, President Buchanan, because don't forget, Lincoln has not been inaugurated yet. He doesn't get inaugurated till March 4th. So this is still around Christmas yeah. time. And Buchanan is so, considered to be kind of a lame duck president at this point in that he, and as the record shows, he do, he's really not going to do fuck all. He's not He's not going to. But remember, too, that Anderson surprised him because he was not told to go there. Yeah. He went on his own. So while Anderson is sitting there with very limited supply of food, a diminishing amount of firewood, because don't forget it's wintertime. And South Carolina does get cold in the wintertime. Buchanan's wasting time because he doesn't know what to do. He knows his term is running out, but he doesn't know how to handle this. Anderson has no orders except to hold the fort. That's all he has. Mm-hmm. He's got to cut rations down. The inactivity is going to continue. We'll talk more about Lincoln going forward here. But this de- indecision is going to go all the way through past the inauguration. So put yourself in the shoes of Anderson, okay? He's sitting there on this island. He's got these families. He's got limited supplies, and no one is telling him what to do. He's, he's stuck in, literally in the middle. So on the rebel side, Governor Francis Pickens, who is now head of state, we talked about him last time, he gets kind of thrust into that limelight through secession. Governor of South Carolina at the time was kind of a figurehead position. When they seceded, he became the head of state, so he became the man. So all of a sudden, he's the guy who's going to be talking with Buchanan. He's going to order all the federal forts to ultimately be turned over to South Carolina. But you remember, the state owned all the forts, and they leased them to the United States government. They, would just, yep. they, wanted them, they wanted them back. And January 9th, Buchanan's administration, they decide, well, we got to get some guys over there. And they send the, the Star of the West, which is a private leased boat that we talked about for 1200 bucks a day, which is a lot of money back yeah, then. Yeah, that was so, a crazy, like that guy took them for a lot of money. <laughs> he gave them a good screwing with that. He did. The government, you know, took, but this boat was, has 200 guys on it and a bunch of supplies for the rations. Now, if this were a movie, Mary, they would burst right through, they'd save the day, yep. the flag would get raised. But that's not what happened. The boat's going to get turned around. They start, They fire a warning shot, they keep going, they fire a second shot, which is not a warning shot, and they go, whoop, yep. screw you guys, I'm going home. Yep. They turn the boat around and they're, they're going to go. And so this is that atmosphere that they're going to be in. A lot of people don't know this. On the 20th of January, Pickens himself sent a boat with 200 pounds of beef and rations to Fort Sumter with vegetables and potatoes and ho-hos and everything a growing boy needs. And this is going to be something that's going to be debated and somewhat controversial. Anderson, boat gets there with all the food on. Everyone's happy. 
Anderson tells him, turn around and go back, take it back to South Don Charles, that he refuses the food. He refuses to take aid from his enemy. That What that is, is that's, that's accepting mercy from your enemy. And that yeah. goes against his dignity. And so he, so again, we're talking women and children here who are starving. And they will cut down with a half rashes, a veggie on a quarter rashes, yeah. 200 pounds of meat, potatoes, a whole deal. He says, get, turn the thing around and get the, get it the hell out of here. And that's what he does. He just doesn't want to accept assistance from the enemy. What he doesn't want to do, he doesn't want the Confederacy, or it wasn't the Confederacy at the time, but he doesn't want to see his enemy being looked at as a gracious enemy. Yeah. So it's it's a moral issue for him, right? So it, you look at, and we'll talk about some more of some of these other forts, but you have the question of your honor as a military person versus your role as someone who is supposed to be, I guess, taking care of these families. And that becomes a big deal. There's a story where a slave stole a rowboat and rode out to Fort Sumter looking for freedom. You know what Anderson does? He tells him to go back oh because he doesn't, want to, he doesn't want to violate the Fugitive Slave Act yeah. because it's that's the, that's the law of the government. Mm-hmm. It's a tough situation he's in, but he's trying to maintain his role as an officer and he's trying to maintain the rules. Well, he also doesn't um, want to be the one to start a war, right? Because when Star of the West was fired upon, like the one thing Anderson does not do is he does not fire back at the Charlestonians that are firing upon Star of the West, right? If he starts anything, if he fires a shot, he's fucked. So he absolutely can't do that. And this is going, and I'm glad you mentioned that, Mary, because we're going to talk about this more in detail, especially with Lincoln about this concept, Mm -hmm. because they don't want to take that first shot. We'll talk more in detail with this. So Buchanan eventually later on Lincoln they don't want they they don't want to give up the, the fort to Sumter. They just don't want to do it because some felt that giving up the fort would actually be the spark that did give up the union. So that was an issue too. The garrison again, they're going cold and hungry, and they're still not getting any reports from Washington. They're just sitting there idle. He knows that violating orders has huge political ramifications, not just for him personally, but the whole country. If I do this, I could. I don't want to be that guy who makes that one mistake that causes this whole thing to burn up. So he's sitting there not knowing what to do as well. The tension in the country has got to be palatable at this point because this is a siege at Sumter now. You think mm-hmm. about it. They're not allowing supplies in. There's American citizens who are on this island suffering yeah. and no one's doing a thing about it. And this is going to be an issue. You know, the Star of the West, yeah, when that gets fired upon, and this people around the country, you can really feel it building. Robert Toombs, the senator from Georgia, who we talked about, will become the secretary of state yep. eventually. He's a big time drinker, Mary, and he's a hardcore partier, pain in the ass. Have you right? seen pictures of him? Oh, yeah. He looks like you know, Will Ferrell over there a little bit. He does, actually. Yeah, you know? you're right. He does. Right? You know, he cannot wait for Georgia to secede. He cannot wait. He, he has to wait. Georgia's going to secede on January 19th of 1861. So he, he's got a little bit of time. So the date of the the date of the firing of the Star of the West is January 9th, 10 days before. He's at a party that night and he's drunk. He's filled to the gills. He's, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost call me maybe time at this party <laughs> in Washington. Okay. And he starts running his mouth. He starts lying, saying, That Star of the West, we sunk that boat. It sunk. And you know what would be great on it? See that guy right there, Scott? Yeah. I wish he was on it. When it's sunk, old Scott hears this and they've got to be separated. I can't imagine get... Scott getting up at that point and doing it like, but just. Well, it probably took him a half an hour to get there, but he, he did, you know, <laughs> the star of the West took quicker time than Scott to get his nice chair to get the tunes, I'll tell you that. <laughs> they had to get separated. The Charleston Mercury, the other newspaper I kind of mentioned too, that they saw the firing of the star of the West wiped out a half a century of scorn and outrage. So this, we said this before, this has been building. 
The citizens in Charleston, they are thrilled. They are loving this. Mm -hmm. When the Star of the West is getting fired upon, they're up there with their glasses, watching it, cheering. You know, kind of like when the Indians used to win, the fans used to come out. Last century, you mean? It's been a while. (laughs) A lot of people in the South are thinking that this Star of the West thing and this provocations by this vitriol Mm -hmm. could force Buchanan to attack. Because you might have no choice politically. Mm -hmm. And the rebels didn't want to be seen as the aggressors either. So they're just too fighters in a boxing ring going around circles. It's basically like a stalemate for a little bit, I would say. Yeah. Is what it's like. Exactly what it was. In the Southerners, these Charlestonians, they're expecting these warships to show up at any time. You know, they fired upon a boat. They don't know if that's a Union warship or what the deal is, but they're expecting either warships to show up on their shore or Anderson to unload these guns at any time. It didn't happen, in which would have started the war right then and there. But if the Union did that, it would have been cutting off their own nose because it probably would have got the border states to flip. They it just yep. they couldn't be seen as the aggressor. And that's we'll keep talking about that. Two o'clock on the ninth, they will stay on the ninth here real quick. You know, Pickens, you know, he's gonna reach out to Anderson and he's gonna basically say, We you do we think you know, what you just did there was was bullshit. Sending the boat. You can't be doing that. You know, what that was, we feel was an was an attack on us. So you you know, you can't be doing that. He's gonna tell Buchanan now, because Pickens, he's the, he's the head of state, he's going to say any future attempts to do that, to resupply or resu- reinforce Fort Sumter, we're going to see as a clear out hostility yeah. in the beginning of beginning of war. So any Union ships that are going to come into Charleston Harbor are going to be fired on. So it's getting ratcheted. The tension's going up and up and up. It's going to keep going up because Buchanan, he's not wanting to deal with it. He's like, I want to deal with anything but this Sumpter shit that's going on because Buchanan is a bit of a Southern sympathizer. But not only that, like there's members of his cabinet, like uh, Floyd, Secretary of War, hope I'm getting his name name right. In the last few weeks of the Buchanan administration, Floyd is shipping arms down south to forts down there. And they're starting to amass them. And they're you know, as William Tecumseh Sherman says, if you know, a few months later to Abraham Lincoln, they're preparing for war. Yeah, Sherman witnesses it when he's at the Louisiana State Seminary later, which becomes Louisiana State University, like he witnesses these arms coming down here with the US scratched off them. So mm-hmm. like Buchanan, you know, he's a bit of a sympathizer, but he also just doesn't want to deal with it. He's going to leave it all for Lincoln to deal with. He is. And and you, you put yourself in the shoes of Anderson, we said before. Now, yeah. You mentioned before about his honor and his duty. Anderson, after receiving Pickens' warning, he still has no word from Buchanan. Yeah. And he also has no way of getting messages to Buchanan because he's stuck. He can't get the messages out either. So he's literally stuck in the middle. He's in the dark. He has no idea if Buchanan has even done anything to respond to the fire of the, the, the Star of the West. Meanwhile, the rations are going to get continually cut down. They're going to be down about quarter rations for these families now. Yeah. Okay. Also, it's January. It's friggin' cold. They got no wood. There's nothing really to burn. I mean, they burn some some old you know supply sheds and things like that. But Anderson will not allow them to take the wood off the walls to burn it. You know why? It's government property. Yeah. And that's against the rules. I'm not sure how much fun Anderson was to be around Mary, but you're, you're freezing and you're the things you can burn. He's not allowing yeah. it. Pickens, he, he put himself in his position. He's getting pressure from the South state of South Carolina yeah. to seize the fort too. He's carrying it too, but he wants to wait to see what Buchanan is going to do. Because this indecision is also leaving Pickens in the, the dark too. Because everything rests on the union at this point. 
the union doesn't want to do anything to the South does, and the South doesn't want to do anything to the union does. So yeah. on January 11th, just two days after the start of the West firing, Pickens is going to send those two delegates from Charleston to meet with Anderson, give them the, the capital U ultimatum, which is basically peacefully abandon Fort Sumter or you're going to get your ass attacked. You know what? That's the yeah. way it's going to be. We're done. Anderson's seeing activity around the harbor at this point. He knows that Pickens, Pickens is screwing around now. He, see, you know, he sees troops on Sullivan Island being fortified. They're sinking these dead ships they call hulks in the yeah. harbor. So the ships can't come in. So they're just there to block the entrances. So they can see that he's, he's not screwing around. Now, he still wants to avoid war, Anderson. He still, you know, he still wants to avoid war. He's going to ask permissions basically to take Pickens' ultimatum to Buchanan. Say, listen, I don't know if he even, he even knows what the hell's going on. Can we take this ultimatum to him? Pickens agrees. He's going to send a guy named Isaac Haig, and Buchanan's going to get the message. But you know what he's going to do? He doesn't know. Dick all. He's going to sit on it. He's not sure what he's going to yep, do. So it's, nothing's done. He's, gonna, he's worrying about the press or about the politics. Yep. He goes, if, if, if I give up the fort, I'm going to piss off the north. If I don't give up the fort, I'm going to piss off the south and probably start a war. The secession, now this is, now you, you know what's coming. There's the rumors of secession, all this anxiety going on. There's the rumors of the Lincoln assassinations that are going to be starting to come mm-hmm. out. You know, there's a boat in Vicksburg that's fired upon in the Mississippi River at this yep. point. You know, it's one of those um, powder cake things. That exactly. The northern warhawks, the ones who still exist today and everywhere, they're seeming. I mean, they're ready to go. They see this as this time to go. They're still pissed about the star of the West firing, and they want revenge on the South. I say this because as we get into Lincoln's dilemma later with this, this all, this all goes into it. What yeah. he decides ultimately what to do. Now, I don't want to surprise, support, you know, ruin the story, Mary, <laughs> about how what he does. But there's a lot of stuff going on in his head. All these sentiments, like I said, are going to be in his Lincoln's mind when he takes over. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now the uh, the other thing going on, okay, that people don't really talk about with this stuff. Is what's going on down in Pensacola, Florida. Exactly, and Fort Pickens. We're not, spring, we're not talking spring training. <laughs> we're not talking, we're not talking Blue talking, Angels uh, either. Fort, okay. Fort don't worry, Blue Angels are to Pensacola, Florida. Am I getting that right? The, those jets? Yeah. Well, you're going to use them, I think. You know, they but did. I don't think they That's have. right. No, that needs to be a meme. I don't think so. <laughs> so Fort Pickens, it's a fort down in Pensacola. It's been empty since 1861. All the soldiers are at a place called Fort Barrancas. It's 50-man garrison under a guy named Adam Slimmer. It's very similar in a microcosm to Moultrie and to, and to Sumter. He want, Slimmer wants to take the troops that are over in Barrancas and move them to Fort Pickens. It's bigger because everything's going on in Florida at the same time. Florida's threatening to secede. They're going to ultimately secede on January 10th, so right around the same time as a lot of these other states do. What happens is on January 8th, there's going to be a bunch of hooligans are going to show up at this fort. A bunch of, I don't know what you want to call them, ruffians, okay? A sentry is going to fire upon them. A lot of people think this is the first shot of the Civil War because it happened before the start of the West, mm-hmm. theoretically, by the by. Slimmer's going to be told by Scott to hold the fort. Same deal. So now Buchanan has got an issue with two forts. He's got basically Pensacola and he's got Carolina. He does send 100 men to Fort Pickens to reinforce it, though. Yeah. But he doesn't want to do it in South Carolina. Yeah. And he's Buchanan, basically, he's not going to do anything. And we're, you've set this up really well for everybody with the whole background leading into when Lincoln takes over on... We ain't done yet. You're not done yet? <laughs> More to do. <laughs> but, but no, but it's... um. But it, it's interesting, though, because you put yourself in the mind of these guys. Now, Pickens, he doesn't want to fight a war either. Mm-hmm. Pickens actually offers the federal government money to evacuate Fort Sumter. Yeah. So we'll just give you money. Just go. 
Meanwhile, down in Texas, there's some stuff going on down in Texas. There's a guy named uh, Brigadier General David Twiggs, who's a commander of the Department of Texas. And he's got a big garrison. He's got 2,500 guys. You know who's in this garrison? A couple of guys. A guy named Robert E. Lee. Mm-hmm. You heard of him? Yeah. Okay. And uh, Charles Anderson is also in this garrison. He's the brother of Robert Anderson. Texas is closest to seating as well. They're going to go on February 1st, 1861. So Twiggs, just like Anderson, is asking Buchanan for what do you want me to do? Buchanan, you know what he does? Nothing. Of course. Nothing. So Twiggs, he has a decision to make. He says, well, I've got 2,500 guys. Do I want to give up the force or I want to risk these men? So you know what he does? Gives up the force. He just gives it up. He says, I'd rather give, I'd give up this property to an old woman with a broomstick, he said at this point. So to me? Because <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> Speaking of that, you're going to see a family in Salem here pretty soon. It's almost that time. <laughs> so. Jeez. So Twiggs, so he's going to get surrounded in a garrison in San Antonio. Now, he's got 19 forts he's in charge of, 19. And he immediately says, you know what, screw it, see you later. He's going to go. So he does the exact opposite of Anderson. And people in the North are going to be outraged at this. They call it Twiggs treason. They say he's dishonorable. Robert Anderson's wife, who, you know, so his brother-in-law was down there, right? Yeah. Robert Anderson's wife writes Robert and says, I'd rather see you, I'd rather see you dead than be a villain, you know, like Twigs. Yeah. The question is a moral one again. Is it the saving people or honorable duty? And that's the thing that keeps coming back with this. Twigs felt with the absence of orders from Washington, because he was not told what to do, that he felt saving his troops was more important than saving territory. Yeah. And that that's the decision he made. So as we end January of 1861, back in South Carolina again, Pickens has his militia at Fort Moultrie, and things are getting bad. He's going to declare martial law on Sullivan's Island. And the other issue that Pickens has is his troops are all green. They're not experienced. These guys are fucking around. There's a story where somebody gets a bayonet through his eye because he's running a hallway and kills a guy oh because God. he's just screwing around. This is the mentality that you're in. So it's not like you're dealing with the Army of Northern Virginia circa Chancellorsville or Gettysburg. Mm-hmm. You're talking about green troops. It's on the best weapons. So as the calendar goes into February, Pickens has to decide now, okay, I made this ultimatum. Nothing is happening. I have to make plans to invade this fort. I just have to. I mean, I've threatened them. No one's doing anything. I have to do it. He makes plans to Jefferson Davis, who has not been inaugurated yet. He's going to get inaugurated on February 22nd of 1861. So he's not in charge yet. Davis rejects it. He says, nah. He goes, you know, he's not an office yet, but he says, you can't, you can't make plans. You can't do anything yet. So around February 26th, what he's going to do now, now Davis is in charge. He decides he needs someone with experience to take over this Carolina situation. Yep. You know who he's going to pick? He's going to pick Pierre Gustave Toutain Beauregard, or Beauregard, Beauregard, as we call on the podcast. He is going to take over command of these growing forces in Charleston. Beauregard's an interesting cat. We've talked about him a lot. The former student of artillery under Robert Anderson, ironically, because these guys are all, you know, whatever. But he was also pretty close with Anderson. Mm-hmm. He had dinner with him. After Anderson, after uh, Beauregard graduated, he became his assistant at West Point. So they were friends. And Anderson is troubled when he hears that Beauregard is in charge of this Carolina. Because he's like, he's like, really? Come on. It just, it just, he's in this tough situation. This guy is his like little brother. He's going to have to face. You know why else I found out today that it was a tough situation for the two of them? I know the answer to this. They were both Masons. They were. They were. And it was very, yep, it was very, apparently it was very hard for Beauregard because of that. 
And there are things that are going to happen that we will discuss later in this episode that are completely to do with this brotherhood of the the Freemasons that was that existed. You know what Beauregard does? The first thing he does when he gets to Sumter, when he gets to South Carolina with Anderson. What's that? He sends him a case of whiskey and a box of cigars. Nice. You know know what Anderson does? Tells him to bring it back. And he sends a letter to Beauregard and says, we received this whiskey and these cigars. It was obviously sent by someone by mistake. Beauregard sends that and he just like the food, he sends it back. So I don't know if I would have done that, but oh, I sure as fuck wouldn't have. <laughs> you know, so you know, Lincoln, you know, he's gonna be coming into play here shortly. Yeah. But he wants to keep Sumter too. He wants to keep it. And no one really knows what Lincoln wants. That's the thing about Lincoln. We'll talk about this in a few minutes. No, he's, he's been very quiet, like from right? from when he was elected right to his inauguration on March the 4th, 1861. He's mm-hmm. been very quiet. And that's just how he that's how he was. But I mean, he is working behind the scenes, but he's being very, very careful not to mm-hmm. talk to the media at all, because he at the time, the president couldn't the president could not say what his plans were. He's basically mm-hmm. having to pay attention to what's going on and all that. Buchanan's lame duck and he doesn't want to do fuck all anyway so i mean that's quite evident from what we we've already talked about but lincoln he's keeping things just very close at hand to himself he does and not you know and we'll probably talk about his inaugural in a few minutes just some of the stuff he says it Mm -hmm. says in that but yeah he's been very uh very quiet on on this matter for sure the one thing he's not quiet upon per a lot of people around his around his close to lincoln is he wants to keep Sumter too. He's also concerned that Buchanan's going to give it up. In the mentality that people think Lincoln was, well, if Buchanan gives up Fort Sumter, then once he's put into power, he's going to reseize it back again. Because yeah. he really wants it. You know, you mentioned Lincoln's inaugural. So yeah. we'll jump, jump to that on March 4th. So, you know, this is when the saying versus the doing with Lincoln kind of comes into two different things, yeah, right? Yeah, he sets it up in his inaugural to put it in the hands of the South by saying, in your hands, my dissatisfied countrymen, this issue lays. I'm paraphrasing that. It's probably not word for word. But this is also his better angels speech as well mm-hmm. it's actually a very 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 eloquent speech not as eloquent as his second inaugural but that's like a whole other story but he does set it up as you say he he, he does but he also mentions in the speech that he does want to protect the property yeah right there was a first draft of this that was much more harsh to the speech it about was. The and seward william seward says you know what don't cut it say back that. dude chill right so he does he softens his words charleston they still get pissed anyway. So he should have gone with mm-hmm. the hard words, Mario. Always go with their first instinct. They still get mad at it because they knew he wasn't going to give up Sumter. They just they just knew. Lincoln, you know, we mentioned before, his speech is very enigmatic. He doesn't want people, he doesn't want to tip his hand. Even Sam Wiley Crawford, who was, who was there, we talked about a bunch of these episodes yep. right now. He reads that dialogue of the speech and goes, so does this mean we're going to war or we have peace? What the hell does this even mean? Even even they don't know. March fifth, his first day in office, mm-hmm. um, and he just gets handed that big bucket of crap from Buchanan with oh, this thing. Yeah, including so Buchanan the, goes yours. Yeah, you know? including the letter from Robert Anderson. Yeah, which tells him that um, he's got just six weeks of supplies left, and basically he's fucked. And he also tells Lincoln it would take quite a large force to resupply Fort Sumter. It would take up to twenty thousand men. To do it. That's what Anderson 20, tells him. Yeah, 20, and there's 20, not 20, that many in the army. 20,000 men, a whole fleet worth of ships. And more importantly, it's going to take months to train. And he ain't got yeah. it. So yeah. Winfield, Winfield Scott, the commander of the army, he tells Lincoln, look, I see no alternative than to surrender Sumter here. This is all you can do. So 
March 9th is going to have a Lincoln's going to have a meeting with his cabinet. There are some historians, and this is the thing too, is no one knows, but yeah. there are some historians who believe that Lincoln hinted at surrendering the fort, kicking it around, right? Scott told him basically, you, you can't resupply it. You, all those things we talked before about all the soldiers. He also needs Congress to authorize that. And they're not even there. Congress is even in session yet. So even if he wanted to, he couldn't. Air almost well, just about every military advisor is telling Lincoln, we agree with Grant's assessment that you need to surrender the fort. Sumter needs to be evacuated. Or do you mean Lincoln, Scott's assessment? Scott's assessment. What did I say? Grant. Grant? You said Grant. Well, well, well Grant, he's already back in this one. <laughs> Um, so too much grant lately. So Scott's <laughs> assessment. Okay. So, so March 15th, Lincoln's going to have another cabinet meeting. He's yep. going to meet him again. And he's going to pull his cabinet this time. Every one of the military guys are going to say, not it. And they're going to touch their nose. We've got to get out of here. Mm-hmm. There are going to be a couple of, and this includes Simon Cameron, the secretary of war, yep. obviously Winfield Scott. And the only people who are going to support him is going to be his postmaster general Montgomery Blair yep. and his treasury secretary Salmon Chase. Yep. They feel that not supplying it is going to lead to war for whatever reason. Yep. But you have your you have your military guys saying you can't, the non-military guys saying you can. And Lincoln's actions that are going to come from this tell you who he's going to listen to. It's going to be a real interesting psychology of why. Yeah. And I think this is shows like Lincoln knew what he wanted to do all along. The other person that is involved in this meeting is Gustavus A. Fox, who is yep. Montgomery Blair's brother-in-law. And he's brought into this because he has a plan that could resupply Sumter. And he is from, I'm going to butcher this, and I apologize to my uh, New Englanders here. He's from Massachusetts. Interesting guy, smart guy, obviously. Yeah, Probably not me, unlike me. Um, and mm-hmm. he's actually eventually going to become assistant Navy secretary, which tells you he he'll made be, some impact on, on Abraham be, Lincoln be, in be, this. Yeah, he'll, he'll be on a boat here in a few weeks, too. He will be. But he's you a know. former naval officer turned businessman. And at this cabinet meeting, he presents the plan to, you know, how to resupply Fort Sumter. And that's when Lincoln poses it to his cabinet. And as you said, there's five of them that dissent. Seward, Cameron, Wells, Smith, and Bates are hard. Nope, we're not doing that. And Chase and Blair are yes. We want to do you that. Know who, you know who else actually, who else says this is a stupid idea to resupply? It's a guy named Joseph Totten. You know who Joseph Totten is? No, I don't. He's a, he's a guy who designed Fort Sumter. And he says it can't be done. It just can't be done, right? Lincoln, at this point, you have to assume already knew what he wanted to do. And oh, what he, he was did. looking for, he's looking for buy-in. You know, sometimes yep. you go on your old crazy cocky stories, you start and you, you just want, okay, that sounds good, and you feel better about it. Yeah. Right. That's what he I think that's what he probably wants to do. Lincoln's gonna send those two envoys to Charleston. We're gonna talk about this here in a few minutes to see the situation. But again, it's delaying the process, and Anderson is still rotting on the vine. Mm-hmm. He's still waiting for orders. He's running very, very low on supplies now, but down to at least quarter rations now. And this is where William Seward gets involved. Yep. And he has his great overreach, right? Mm-hmm, he does. And he's, in a way, it's Seward is, so he's talking to delegates from South Carolina. He doesn't want to give up Sumter for political reasons. And he starts talking to these delegates without Lincoln knowing. And he's talking to them and the delegates actually think, oh, he's talking for Lincoln. But but Seward actually has in his head that it's going to be really him running the government and not Lincoln. Mm. Like he doesn't have, I mean, Lincoln has chosen him for reasons. Seward's brilliant, but he doesn't really, obviously Seward doesn't have the same respect for him at this point. 
Um, Seward actually believes that in South Carolina, there's actually unionist support still. Seward yeah. thinks he's going to be able to talk. Well, I, I'll be able to talk Lincoln into this. You know, Scott, Cameron, all these guys. We'll talk him into this. I'm going to, I'm going to make the Confederates think that we're probably going to give up the fort. The Confederates think he's a secretary of state. He must, to your point, he must be speaking for Lincoln. Yep. When things change, it's going to automatically continue to build that distrust they're going to have for Abraham Lincoln. As we get into the end of March now, Anderson's still sitting there, yep. you know, kind of like me and me on a Saturday night wondering where everybody is, you know. And Sam Wiley Crawford is going to write, still no order, not sure why we are being neglected, he writes. So they're all sitting there thinking, what the hell is going on here? They are. Um, One thing I want to mention is Lincoln does send his friend Stephen Hurlbut, who we talked about last week, sends him down to South Carolina because that's where he's from because he wants to find out if there's actually union you know, sentiment mm-hmm. in the state. Yeah, it's one, one of those two envoys. And then Hurlbut comes back to tell Lincoln that he has no hesitation in reporting as unquestionable that union sentiment in the city and the state was dead. Separate nationality is a fixed fact. So they're right there, wherever Seward got that idea, mm-hmm. Lincoln's like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. No. So just to spoil the story, Lincoln's going to resupply these guys. Yep. This is what he's going to, this is what he's going to make. So we'll jump ahead and go on and go back. So, Lincoln knows he's going to go against all of his military advisors to resupply Fort Sumter's, right? So the question is why? Why would he do it? So a lot of people, he's fighting a multi-front war in his own country. He's got those that war hawk mentality in his own Republican Party. He's got to satisfy. Feeling that you would draw from Fort Sumter is the worst thing you can do right off the bat. Mm-hmm. March 28th, Winfield Scott's going to send yet another letter to Lincoln advising on the situation in Pensacola. You know, you, you should probably withdraw this garrison in Pennsylvania because it's if you don't, you're gonna lose border states, it's gonna get bad. March twenty-eighth at this point, you've lost seven states already. Lincoln is gonna get pissed at him for this because he's gonna sit there and say, Listen, you're my military guy, and I don't need political advice from you. But if I were Scott, I would say, listen, fucking rail splitter guy, I give you military <laughs> advice and you don't listen to me either. Right. So we'll call it even. So Lincoln, at this point, he's made up his mind what yep. he's going to do. He begins the process of trying to send supplies to Fort Sumter at this point, mm-hmm. knowing he's going basically 100 percent against the advice of almost all of his military guys. He's YOLOing this right at the beginning of his administration. He, he does. But you he know? does have another cabinet meeting on the 29th. And this time, all but Seward and Caleb Smith agree with resupplying Fort Sumter. So at least he's got some more buy-in with that. But I mean, as you said, Lincoln's already reached a, reached a decision, but now at least he's got the buy-in of all but two of his cabinet members this time. So he requests a list of ships and supplies from Fox, which Fox gives to him. And like I said, he was going to do this no matter what. So then he tells Secretary of Navy Wells to start drawing up plans, as well as Simon Cameron is supposed to help out with that too. I think those guys in that the 29th meeting they had, I think at this point they figured a couple things. One, war is inevitable. Yeah. Okay? Yep. He's going to do it anyway. I might as well get on this guy's plan not to piss him off. Because if I go against him, I mean, who knows? I, I guess we'll have to do that. Lincoln's priorities at this point, and this is the speaking versus the doing thing we talked about. Yeah. Number one goal, without a doubt, is preserve the Union. That's his number one, okay? He knows he's not going to have peace with the South, right, It's by just letting them go. 
just because he's not, if yeah. he does that, he's not going to preserve the union. So that this whole pointless. His second priority is that Republican Party unity. So you've got the the radicals, you've got the war hawks. He needs to bring them together because he has to work with these people. So he has to do that. He has to, he has to find a way. Now he says a lot of things about slavery, but I don't think that's a priority at this point for him. No, his goal his goal is clearly to saving the union and party unity. Right. Yeah. He knows peaceful resupply is impossible. He knows withdrawing the fort is going to disrupt that party unity. So he knows what he's going to do. At the end of the day, he needs the Rebs to look like the aggressors. We Like we said at the very beginning of this, he, he doesn't want to throw the first punch. He wants them to do it as well. So he's basically playing chicken with them. He's going to call their bluff. He knows Anderson's supplies are going to run out by 415. So to your point, he's going to decide to send those ships with Gustavus Fox, he's going to send the three ships, the Nita, the Pinta, and the Santa Maria. No, different guy. <laughs> different guy. He's going to send the, the U.S. I just thought Spartans. of that song. What's that <laughs> yeah. song that has all them in it? The fuck? I don't know. Um, <laughs> the U.S. is Pawnee. The U.S. is Powhatan. The U.S. is Pocahontas. <laughs> this can't be easy. The U.S. is Harry, Harriet Lane. Yeah. The ship called the Baltic. Those are the ships he's going to send. They're all going to set sail on 4 6. They're going to have about 500 guys and a bunch of supplies on it. The Harry Lane will be the first one that's going to get there on the evening of 4-11. It's going to finally start to show up. At this point, Beauregard, Beauregard, as you call him, mm-hmm. during the day, this is when he's going to send his little commission over now, right? Mm-hmm. So he's going to send Colonel James Chestnut, Stephen D. Lee, and Lieutenant Chisholm to go demand the, the, recent, the yeah. you know, surrender. But- he's going to go there. Listen, we've played around enough. You yeah. have to. Sh- this is done, okay? Anderson's going to stall. He's going to do the whole, yeah, I don't know. We'll, we'll see, you know. And <laughs> now it's million. 3 o'clock. So it's way past call me maybe time. It's 3 o'clock yeah. in the morning, okay? Mm-hmm. Finally, Colonel Chestnut, who has been given authority to decide to fire on this thing, he, they gave him the, the power of Grayskull, as you say. Mm-hmm. He says, okay, listen, here's the deal. We're going to attack in an hour. So whatever. We gave you long enough. Yeah. We're going to, we're going to give you one hour. We're going to start firing. So, and the horse you rode in on, which is much more elegant than you said. <laughs> but there is something that happens before this on April the 9th with Jefferson Davis and his cabinet that gives Beauregard the orders yeah. to do this, this cabinet meeting that he has. And he has one dissenting opinion. And that is from the guy we mentioned earlier, Toombs. Toombs is not in agreement to strike a blow on Fort Sumter, as it was put. He is the poster boy for states' rights and fire eater, as much as you can possibly get. And he says to Davis that this is suicide murder and it will lose us every friend in the North. You will wantonly strike a hornet's nest, which extends from mountain to ocean, and legions now quiet will swarm out and sting us to death. It is unnecessary. It puts us in the wrong. It is fatal. And for this to come from tombs, this kind of like dissenting opinion is really something. But Davis is going to go ahead with it anyway. And that's what's ha- that's what is going to happen at 4.30 a.m. on April the 12th. Yeah, 4.30 is going to hit. They're going to send the batteries they're going to, the, to all the forts that are surrounding Sumter, you know, Pinckney, uh, Morris Island, Fort Moultrie. This is where the legend of Edmund Ruffin comes in, Mary. Mm-hmm. Okay, Edmund Ruffin is a veteran of the War of 1812, a Virginian secessionist and overall Fun lover, fun guy to be around. Apparently, you've got a cool story about Ruffin to tell. Yeah, we'll talk about that in a second. He's a planter from Virginia, hardcore, uh, strong slavery supporter, hard secessionist. What they would call a fire eater back in the day. Everybody knows who what he Edmund Ruffin looks like. Thin, big, long, white, stringy hair. Okay, and he's a fire eater, and. He resembles a character in the Harry Potter stories. One of my favorite characters, actually. Whose name is? 
Lucius Malfoy. Lucius Malfoy. So Lucius Malfoy is in charge of a group in Harry Potter called the what? The Death the Eaters. The Death Eaters. Okay. So one day, I made this connection one day sitting on my deck. What if Malfoy was inspired by Edmund Ruffin? Mm-hmm. So I got on the Twitter one day and I tweeted J.K. Rowling. And I asked her that. By the button is curious. And she actually responded to me. And she says, you know what? You, yes. And you're the first person to ever make that connection. Oh. I was like, wow. Well, there you go. They even look like. That's what I thought about They it. do. Yeah. No, they do. Ruffin allegedly is going to fire the first shot. He traveled all the way to Charleston after Lincoln was elected. He wanted to encourage secession. He was one of those guys who just wanted to poke the stick. Allegedly, he was on Fort Morris Island and they actually firing the first shot. He tells his son, he says, the times since I've been here have been the happiest days of my life. Now, think about all the tension and the shit going on in Charleston. This is the happiest he's ever been. <laughs> Show well, how yeah, he's, been, he's right? well, he's not, like he's yeah. in 1860. He wrote a book called Anticipations of the Future to serve as lessons for the present time. Mm-hmm. He predicted the Civil War would actually happen in 1868 with the reelection of the quote unquote hated William Seward and that the first shots of that war would be fired at Fort Sumter and that the South would be victorious. There you go. Right? 1868, here, uh, when he predicts that will happen, he's not going to be alive. Now, here, here's the sad part of the story, okay? The first shot was actually fired by, fired by a guy named Lieutenant Henry Farley mm-hmm. on James Island. So yep. it really wasn't rough. And, but that's the story. So it sounds good. Yep. So it's kind of like their version of John Burns. So yep. He fired so one of, I think Ruffin fired one of the first shots. Because after that first one went over from Farley, then it was like, okay, go ahead and open fire. Yeah. So you know. okay. Well, everybody, everybody has their fun. So Anderson, he's not going to return fire for about two hours. No, he's but, just going to sit there and, and just take it. He's low, low on ammo. He's got, what is he going to do? And he's know? also low low on oil in the lamp so the men there's no way that they could light their way Mm -hmm. to get where they need to be and see what they need to do there is a person in charleston on this night that actually is there for this first shot and her husband you're not gonna say it are you i am mary chestnut mary chestnut is there um her husband is actually one of the delegates that has been going over to speak to anderson along with chisholm and stephen d lee And she says of this night on April the 12th, she says, I do not pretend to go to sleep. How can I? If Anderson does not accept terms at four, the orders are he shall be fired upon. I count four St. Michael's bells chimes out and I begin to hope. At half past four, the heavy booming of a cannon. I sprang out of bed and on my knees prostrate as I pray as I have never prayed before. And she goes on to write that the shells were bursting and in the dark I heard a man say, what waste of ammunition. I knew my husband was rowing about in a boat somewhere in that dark bay and that the shells were roofing over it, bursting toward the fort. If Anderson was obstinate, Colonel Chestnut was to order the fort on one side to open fire. Certainly fire had begun. The regular war of the roar of the cannon, there it was. And who could tell what each volley accomplished of death and destruction? You know, on the anniversary in April, on um, April 12th at 4.30 in the morning, they fire a cannon every year in Charleston. Do they really? Yeah, you can hear it. Boom. They're just they're coming I right actually kind of want to be in Charleston sometime for that. Probably coming home from some bar probably at 4 30. Yeah, singing Call Me, maybe. And boom. <laughs> but the, the Rebs, you know, they were actually, you know, they were using something called hot shot mm-hmm. out of their cans. Yeah. So what they would do is they'd take these cannonballs and stick them in the microwave for half an hour, right? Heat them up. And then fire them, and they'll be really, really hot. It would cause fires. It would really come into the effect with this battle. So 7 o'clock in the morning, Anderson decides he's going to start working back. And he's going to enlist old friend Abner Doubleday, the inventor of baseball, Mary, whose um, team in Boston is the best team in baseball right now, by the way. You meant Indians. 
Oh, yeah, sure. And he's going to fire the Union's first shot. Yep. He's going to be that first guy. Cannonade's going to go all day back and forth. But the Union's going to start slowing down because they're running out of ammo. they got to yeah. conserve it, you know. That night, um, Beauregard is going to reduce his shots to about four an hour just to kind of conserve his as well. On Saturday the 13th, Beauregard in the morning is going to start all over again. He's going to fire his hot shots. Gonna, the place is going to start burning. Things are going to catch. It's going to start to catch on fire. While this is going on, there's an interesting story of a guy named Louis Wigfall. Have you heard of him? I have. Louis Wigfall is a guy from Texas. He's a politician, also a big drinker, Mary, by the way. Okay. He is going to, on his own initiative, he's going to jump in a boat. While the Rebs are firing at Fort Sumter, he's going to roll out to Sumter without any knowledge of Beauregard doesn't know he's doing this. He's going to go meet with Anderson, and he's going to sit there with Anderson. He's going to say, listen, his quote is, your flag is down. You are on fire. Beauregard wants you to stop this. So Anderson's like, you know what? Yeah, I guess I probably should do. At this point, Beauregard's going to also send envoys out, and he's going to see these other guys. What, what he does, Wigfall does, he negotiates a pretty good deal with Anderson. Mm-hmm. Really generous on Anderson. So he's like, okay, this is fair. So now Anderson and Beauregard's aides are going to show up and offer a different deal. And Anderson's going to be pissed off. Go, what the hell? I just made a deal with the, you know, so he, so that's how this guy was. Eventually do agree to surrender. It was funny because this Wigfall guy, talk about a YOLO. He, he eventually quits the Confederacy in 1862. He gives up his commission and he joins a Texas Senate. And he starts making a lot of noise against Jefferson Davis saying, He's the one who, who starts complaining that Davis wants a national Confederate government. And he's like, wait a second. I, saw, I thought this was a state's rights thing. What is this federal government thing? So this is that guy. After the war, he goes to England for the express purpose of pissing them off to start a fight with the United States. That's what this guy is. So he's like, which <laughs> is just interesting. He's going to basically quit Anderson as, and there's that story of a guy named Norman Hall. Mm-hmm. The flagpole gets broken. So yeah. he goes, he wants to climb up and fix it. Cannonball goes by and permanently burns his eyebrows off. Permanently. It's like the anti-Braxton Bragg. He's have no eyebrows whatsoever. Wow. Anderson eventually is going to say, okay, I'm, I'm done. Can you please give us a hundred gun salute? Mm-hmm. And they go, yeah, okay, whatever. Knock yourself out. Fires 47 shots. 48, the gun misfires, kills one of the soldiers. Yeah. And they decide, let's just call it 50. <laughs> they don't do the full hundred. I even thought it was kind of kick of it. But um, he eventually is going to get on a cargo ship and he's going to go to New York City where he's going to become a national hero. This is Robert Anderson now. Yeah. He's going to take that 35-star flag with him in New York City. He's going to have a rally. It's going to be the biggest rally in the history of the country at that time. That's yeah. what this is going to be. They're basically hailed as heroes for, for what they've done. And Doubleday says that all the passing steamers saluted us with their steam whistles and bells and cheer after cheer went up from the ferry boats and vessels in the harbor. Now, the one man that was killed during this salute was Private Daniel Howe. He's an immigrant from Ireland, and he's 35 years old when he's killed. And he's considered to be the first casualty of the American Civil War. And it's he's killed because the round explodes near him. It's ironic you think about it. I know you like to read your casualty numbers. We were talking about this the other day. Yeah. Theoretically, the casualties were zero, zero on this. No mm-hmm. one got killed except him. And it was actually a second guy who got morally wounded who died a few days later. Yeah. This ongoing battle, just going back and forth. Now, after Sumter Falls, the North is outraged. Now, people, yeah. you, know, you, you look at the whole historical memory thing we talked about, right? Yeah. They always talk about like the North was going to fold. They don't want to fight the you know, copperheads. Da, 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 da. Well, the North was outraged and Lincoln was quick to respond. He, he was. He, he, the day he writes, after, that's when he brings up the call for the troops. He writes that quote, now I, Abraham Lincoln, President of the United States, 
Clothes and immense power. <laughs> Hereby call forth the militia of several states to aggregate 75,000. So he calls up 75,000 and thousands answer the call. I mean, thousands. Yeah. They Because the North is like, Bruh. I mean, think about people here around 9-11 were in this country. Yeah. Around 9-12. Anybody would run through a wall, right? Yeah. There was a mother, a New York mother, who sent five sons to the Civil War mm-hmm. right off the bat. And she said, if I had 10 sons, I'd give them all sooner than have our country in fragments. So th- I mean, think about how this is going to change. We're talking about New York draft riots later on. In exactly. Yeah. But at the beginning, they wanted blood. They were so pissed off. 75,000 call up is going to be a huge blunder in a way because it's going to cause Virginia to secede April 17th. Yeah. And then Tennessee eventually will as well. All these states, basically, they, they write back. Some of them write to Lincoln and they're like, fuck you. We're not doing this. We are not sending troops. Tennessee does. Um, and some of the other states too that have well, not you're yet gonna, you're gonna, Arkansas is going to go about a month later, yep. and then North Carolina it goes in waves. You have Carolina, then you got the three days. You got Mississippi, yep. Florida, Alabama, bang, bang, bang on the January 9th, 10th, and 11th, and Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Virginia, Arkansas, Carolina, and eventually Tennessee. But the border, some of the border states like Kentucky, well, they basically say that yep. Kentucky is a border state. They say you know when he calls those troops. Kentucky is pretty pissed off. They yeah. they basically say we will not be sending any troops no. for the wicked purpose of subduing our sisters in the South. So yeah. they don't flip, but they don't help. It brings up a lot of interesting personal decisions we've talked about before. Yeah. Guys like Virginia, you have a lot of people and most of the generals in Virginia who are in the military did stay. No, there was a lot of guys like George Thomas. Yeah, exactly. Right? The Rock, the Rock of Mill Springs. Okay. He's going to stay. The big one is going to be Robert E. Lee. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Now, we mentioned before, he was with David Twiggs out in Texas, and he did a, he did a lot of stuff at Harper's Ferry and all that. Most people in Robert E. Lee's family were livid, pissed he stayed with the Confederacy. They didn't like it. So Robert E. Lee, you know, he says that he has a quote, Virginia stands by the old Union, so will I. But if she secedes, I will follow my native state with my sword and, if need be, will give my life. Yeah. That all sounds well and good. It really does. It caused a lot of controversy within his own family, even. Yeah, it, does. Well, it, ca- it causes a lot of controversy in George Henry Thomas's family, though, too. When, when General Thomas decides to, f- to stay in the Union, his sisters completely disown him and turn his picture like to the wall. Mm-hmm. You know, like they don't want to show who he is at all. They don't want to talk about him. But then you have... I think it was John Gibbon was raised in North Carolina. He fights for the Union. His brothers fight for the South. Uh, John Buford, Kentuckian, fights for the Union. You know, so there are, you know, these soldiers that become prominent in the Civil War that are, they do remain loyal to the Union. Well, Jeb, Jeb Stewart's stepfather, right? Yeah, exactly. Him. Yeah. You know, Jeb Stewart said he afterwards, he says, he will regret that decision just once. It'll be continuously. That's the quote that Jeb said. So it really went on and on and on about how this thing went. But as this went on, I think most people in the North felt this was still going to be a two-foot putt. The Rebs didn't yep. have it in them. We're going to show a show of force, and this is going to be over, and everyone's going to be happy again. And as we talked about last week with Shiloh, it didn't work out that well. Yep. What well, was it? It was a lady's thimble or a handkerchief? Is that the debate we got into the one time? Yeah, you give me hell. <laughs> it turned out we were both right. But there is one man. Actually, there's a couple men. I mean, Toombs is obviously one of them that thinks that this is going to be a long, drawn-out affair. Uh, The other is William Tecumseh Sherman, who we mentioned in the last episode, that says to his friend David French Boyd, you know, this is going to be a long, drawn-out affair. You have no idea who you're going up against. Like, the North can—we've got factories and everything else up there. Like, we can— 
can do all this stuff that you guys can't do. And it's going to be an absolute bloodbath. And the other one that thinks that is a guy named Thomas Jackson. He Mm -hmm. recognizes that it's going to be a long drawn out affair as well. Yeah. And it's interesting when this whole thing plays itself out, guys like Anderson, guys like Sam Wiley Crawford are all going to end back up again. It's it's Fort Sumter to help raise the American flag when it's all said and done. So it's very, it's a circular thing. But I think what this told with secession, we didn't really want to talk too, too much about the whole orders of secession, all that stuff, because it's just constitutional crap about why they went. But it's interesting to see the dynamic of how it went and the psychology of guys like Lincoln to see what he was thinking at the time. I think he wanted peace, but it had to be his peace, the way he saw it going down. And the only way to do that was to have have a war with the South, but it was one that he needed the South to start. He couldn't do he it did. himself. He, he did actually, and I am do not agree with what the South did at all, but he did brilliantly back Jeff Davis into a corner to the point where he had to issue that order to Beauregard, strike a blow, do it. We have to now. You know, we've got to do it. He was left with mm-hmm. no choice but to say that, you know, Lincoln could not be the aggressor in, in this. And that was just, I think Lincoln knew that all along, that he could not be the aggressor, but he knew... A lot of them knew war was the only way out of this at this point. Seward thinking, you know, oh, yeah, if we like abandon Sumter, then then South Carolina is just going to come back. And so are the other states. That was just I don't know what he was thinking. But well, there's a lot of very famous historians who who adhere to that, you know, who think that if you just let them have it, they were going to come back and have this peace. It was never going to happen. Yeah, there's no Um, way. And the one thing we'll never know, we'll never know the internal mind of Lincoln at this time. It will never know the moral dilemma that Anderson had by having to basically watch women and children freeze and starve under his watch while maintaining his honor by doing things like turning that food away. Yeah. Right. Now they were taken. Now they were taken off the fort prior to be being fired upon a few weeks. They managed to work something out. So they were not on there when it was fired upon, Mm -hmm. but still you know, the dilemma that he went through with that. And two, the other thing is as well is the Civil War, it begins in South Carolina and the two main people that it's between Beauregard and Anderson are not only friends, but they're Masons. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how Beauregard feels about having to fire upon a fellow Mason. In the craft, what he did went against virtually everything he yeah. was taught. And that's what like, that's what like, I'm like, and I know, like, leading up to that, he was going to Anderson and trying to say to him, look, you need to like, just leave, go. But you like know, in those cigars and the whiskey. Yeah, were, but also know, to those give... exploding cigars, maybe who knows. <laughs> but just, you know, knowing that that puts a whole other element into this, that how all this stuff that plays into this American Civil War, and we've seen it before, at Franklin with Patrick Claiborne being a Mason and how he was cared for after he was shot and he subsequently dies of his wounds to think about it changed when I found out you know when I listened to a lecture about the Masons at Fort Sumter and how that played into it that adds another element into it as well like Beauregard's having to do something that probably goes against a lot of what he believes Masonically what he did went against virtually everything yeah Everything, the country, the whole deal. Yeah. And that's why we'll never really know the personal struggles that these people went through. Exactly. Us, yeah. Right. And that's, I think, an important part of this civil war and what we do on this podcast is to tell those stories and to bring those to light to make people think more about those. I mean, it makes them human, mm-hmm. right? That they're going through these, they're not just robots or soldiers 
dots on a map or whatever. These are people with thoughts and feelings. I don't agree with what Beauregard did, but a lot factored into that decision. It did. And you knew that he regretted that probably at the time. He probably couldn't say it. But at the same time, it goes back to that thing with Anderson with the duty and the honor. Yeah. Right. At some point, you have to choose. You have to make a decision and pick a horse. And that's what did. You saw what David Twiggs did in Texas. He felt that it was more important to save his troops. You, know, you saw what Robert Anderson did with basically saving, you know, sacrificing all those people because yeah. of what he felt by not... Gen- giving showing generosity from the enemy so it's an interesting study yeah. you know a lot of people just assume that anders was at the fort Borgard came out fired yep, upon and him, there were shots took fired. Off, and that was it there was so was much the more but- there was so much more to it there was when when anderson when chestnut chisholm and lee have to go back on that final trip to tell him we are going to fire upon you when they're done with that meeting anderson walks them down to the dock he says if we we never meet in this world again god grant that we may meet in the next and it be better, you know, like hopefully it's a better world that we're, we're in when we see each other again. And I wonder if there was some Mason behind that too, you know, that if the, those three men I, were I Masons I, as well. Well, that quote tells me that, look, we, you know, I don't think any of us want to do this, but we have a sense of duty and we feel like we have to, we yeah. have, we have to go by this. And there was a lot of that. And it was a lot of that on both sides. And so Fort Sumter is an interesting story. It's a great visit for anybody who has been there. You know what I'm talking about? If you haven't, then well, okay, you got to that's your new homework list to get to get to Fort Sumter. So, anyway, Mary, I think that's a great place to drop off. I think yep. it's an important important study to talk about this to understand the psychology and the emotions going into secession. Yeah, that it wasn't an, a math equation. There was so much that went into in the mindset of Lincoln, Buchanan, Anderson, Davis, Pickens, Beauregard. all these guys, Beauregard, what they did. And what they did for the beer guards of the world to take arms against his own government and his own teacher, yeah, right? And his own brother. And his own brother, you got it. You know, and it's interesting when Robert when Robert Anderson talked about after he met with Beauregard, he said he fears this is going to be a war of fratricide. Yeah. And he's probably talking about maternal fratricide. Yeah, not, not Freemasonry. Fratricide, so. Yeah, yeah, so, Freemasonry. Yeah, there's a lot of them. Anyway, what's next? So next week, we are talking about the escape and the capture of Jeff Davis. I didn't say catch this time. (laughs) So we'll go from the very beginning to the very end. To the very end of the war. And actually, just a little bit of a housekeeping announcement. Um, We are going to be having our roundtable the fourth Wednesday, so the last Wednesday of April, because we have something going on next Wednesday night when we would normally be having our roundtable. But it's a good thing. We are attending our friend Lisa's lecture about her newly released book, Famous and Faceless Women of the Civil War. Our friend Lisa Samia, who um, you know from our lives and from very good things, we'll be supporting her. So we'll be sacrificing a week on our round table to do that. So hopefully people lost, listen to this and yep. watch this can jump on and support her as well. So we'll yep. be and back. Then, exactly. Yep. And then after we do, after we talk about Jeff Davis, we are going to be back in the Carolinas again to wrap up our discussion of the Carolinas campaign, which includes uh, William Tecumseh Sherman's trip to C- City Point to see Grant and Lincoln, as well as his surrender with Johnston. Mm-hmm. And there'll be a lot of fun things coming down the pike. Yep. So that'll be that for that. So we are off we go into the wild blue yonder yet again. Episode 35 is done. Blue, blue angels in my head yep. now. <laughs> That's okay. But anyway, so hey, Mayor, great episode. Yep. You bring it as always. You always, always oh, do. Oh, so do you. And, um, and we will uh, look forward to talking to everybody on the live this weekend. And of course, heading off into a roundtable here in a couple of weeks. And then we'll talk about Jefferson Davis and did or did he not wear a dress. Yes. We'll talk about that the next The answer week, may guys. surprise well, y'all. 
Might about be. whether Might or not be. We'll find us. out. We will see. We will see. So any final words from you there, Fincheru? No. Thank you for um, bringing it like you always do weeks and being the awesome co-host in this podcast. And thank you for all our listeners for your continued support with this. It's awesome. Yep. We absolutely appreciate it. It's a lot of fun to do. And we will look forward to talking to you as always, as they say, on the other side. See y'all later. Peace out. Bye. <laughs>